Okay. All right. How are you? You gonna hang out after service so I can get some of your time? I said you're gonna hang out after service so I can get some of your time? Okay, sweet. Yep. Can you guys hear me? I'm on. Did you take it off? Okay, it's on. Bye, Shermans. All right, well, how's everybody doing? Ooh, that's canny. I guess I'm supposed to keep talking. Yeah, so uh, the, uh, I don't know if, I think you guys may remember, we had to get an all different system for the I don't know what all that stuff is called. But anyway, so it's still kind of a learning curve. And, and now we have three people in the sound booth and uh, a couple more computers. And the problem was is that if we had everything on one computer and if it tanked in the middle of everything, we would lose the podcast, the live stream, the sound, everything. And uh, so we had to upgrade. And then we, we had this thing called easy worship. And we bought it right after I got here, and it's been nothing but difficult worship, this program. And, and I'm not even a tech guy, and I'm like, this is absolutely ridiculous. I mean, a monkey could have done better at designing this. It's a government software. <laughs> no, it actually does something. But, uh, so anyway, uh, the, the old, the, the easy worship couldn't do what we needed it to do for all that we're doing now. So Roger had to get a different one, which act, turns out to be the standard one. And, uh, and so we're just learning. There's some differences. We're learning how to do it. So he's been training. Roger, how many people you train? How many people will you have trained by Sunday? Ten. So, yeah. And then uh, next week is uh, Roger and Hillary's big one year. And, uh, so that's impressive. Yeah. And when is your guys's? Yeah, you too. It was April. Oh man, I missed it. I'm so sorry. It's been a little different lately. So what did you guys do? You hung it up. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So uh, I did their wedding on the steam train. And that was... That was fun. It was still different. And what's that? You did? Uh, yeah. Otherwise, you might still be in Europe. <laughs> yeah. Well, good. Good. So, yeah, there's a few people in here who've been married a long time. Yes, ma'am. 33rd? Ooh. Gee whiz, that's awesome. Shani and I are going to be tw 21 years. How long are you guys? 39. Oh, <laughs> take a back seat. <laughs> 51. They don't mean to boast, but yeah. Yeah, and if you haven't noticed, Tracy and Carol are here in town, and you'll be here until November. Yeah, it's good to see you guys. So we need to get a full report what you've been doing. So, what's that? Music, yeah. Okay, well. All right, well, um, as you guys know, we've been talking uh, about family discipleship and parenting, and uh, it is kind of funny that um, most of the families here don't have small children, uh, but hopefully people are listening by uh, the podcast and watching and everything. And uh, so, yeah, and I... I'm still at this, the point in, in my parenting where I feel a little bit awkward talking about it with any kind of authority because the, the fruit of my parenting really is yet to be determined. 
Uh, my oldest is 14, and as fantastic as a child as he is, um, I'm, I'm being a little biased toward my son. But any, any problem you see in my child is probably directly related to something in his father. And, uh, but we pray that our, our kids would be twice the men uh, and women that, that we are. And, uh, so, are you listening, Isaac? Okay. All right. He's agreeing with me. That's right. That's right. So, um, so I, I think the, the thing is, is I can teach the scriptures. I can exposit the various passages on rearing children. I can develop and deliver the theology. Uh, but my fruit is limited. And um, so I don't have children out of the home walking faithfully with the Lord. And even if I did, uh, it would just amount to a great deal of the grace of God being with us in the whole process. You know, one sinner raising another sinner uh, with free will and the rest. And um, uh, last time I checked, God is perfect and he raised two rebels that at the time weren't sinners. And so parenting uh, apparently is a challenge. Amen? And so uh, when, when anybody kind of gives the, the, you know, this vibe that they have it together, I think that um, they don't have it together. And it's, it's uh, waiting for something bad to happen. But nothing, as, as many of you have parented, probably are like me, that nothing makes you feel as inadequate as parenting has. Um, I would say the only thing that is even close to that that makes me feel inadequate is technology. Uh, but there's no moral implications uh, with, with knowing that. So um, no mandate from scripture to know technology. Roger does have a mandate from me to know technology. And uh, so, right, Raj? Okay, so he comes to my rescue quite often. So anyway, our text tonight is Ephesians 6, 4, and as you'll see, Ephesians 6, 4 is the directive to, to raise, train, nurture our children, but it doesn't give any techniques. You don't see techniques there. Uh, if you're looking for techniques in parenting, you'll really have to go to the book of Proverbs, and that's about the only place where you see the actual techniques. You see commands to parent, you see commands to teach the kids, the scriptures, but as far as methodology and hands-on stuff, it's really in the book of Proverbs, and there's a lot there, uh, nothing of which our culture agrees with, uh, but it's there, and um, so let me read this passage to you, and then we'll pray. Paul says, and you fathers do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Let's pray. Well, Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you that accompanied by your word is uh, your spirit, Lord, your grace, the, the wisdom that uh, is provided. And, um, and Lord, I just, I, I mean, few things come close to the importance of, of good biblical parenting. And uh, we want to understand the mandate. And Lord, we want to be wise in the method, the application. And Lord, we want to ask for grace always, that your spirit, your hand, would, would be in the middle of it. Because without it, it's just kind of a hopeless ordeal. So yeah, so be with us tonight as we explore some of these things, and that uh, it would be encouraging to everyone, uh, as your word is, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, um, as we mentioned previously, the instruction is aimed specifically at fathers, but we have to be careful not to say that this is to the exclusion of a mother. Uh, mothers play, obviously, a key role in uh, the raising of our children. But the weight of all of it rests upon the shoulders of the father, the institution of it, the execution of it uh, in the home, that is on the father, unless, of course, the father is not at home, uh, 
or a believing mother is married to an unbelieving man that has no interest in training the children in the scriptures. And so that weight would then fall to the mother and she would just do what she could. And, uh, and it's possible, trust me. Right, mom? It's possible. Um, God gives grace when grace is needed. So we've talked about fathers as it's addressed specifically to them, but then Paul begins with uh, a prohibition. He says, do not provoke your children to wrath. That is, do not push them to the point of exasperating them, okay, pushing them to anger. Um, yeah, not only is that sinful, uh, it's going to prove to be destructive to the child's character and to the kid's faith, okay? Going to just prove that way. Um, children should be brought along and have things expected of them, but they should not be provoked, which just contributes to their downfall. Now, the thing is, is that everybody is going to have an idea of what pushing a child is too far. But I think that in our current culture, um, we've, I think we've decided as a society that, that anything is too much for a child these days. And so rather than uh, this instruction uh, having so much application in, in our particular culture, it's almost like it needs to swing the other way. Do you, do you know what I'm saying? Because today it seems like less and less is being expected of our children, which is only hurting them in society. So when Paul says don't provoke them to wrath, he's not saying drop all expectations. Uh, he's not saying that eliminate anything that's uncomfortable to them in their life. Uh, actually, it's uncomfortable things that produces character. Amen? It produces character. Um, yeah, the method that is currently be, being applied to children is not yielding a good result. Uh, getting discomforts out of life, making everything a safe place. Have you guys seen that phenomenon going on in colleges right now? So when a, a, any kind of conservative speaker comes to the college, the college now is responsible to create a safe place on campus so that they don't get their feelings hurt. They're given coloring books and all kinds of bizarre, bizarre stuff. And, you know, of course, we'd expect that from Berkeley but it's happening in many universities around the country. If you don't believe me, look it up. Uh, if Ben Shapiro shows up at a campus, uh, there, has to, there has to be a safe place. And if they don't provide a safe place, the campus can be sued. Uh, so people are just, I mean, all kinds of, I don't, I don't even know how to address it. It's just so insane. Uh, children brought up in that are, are going to be intolerable and they're going to haunt the rest of the world as adults. And uh, that's not a good thing. And uh, so often the things that we're protecting our children from are the very things that make them better people, better workers, better citizens, and better Christians. And uh, it's by the inclusion of these things that we actually root out the undesirable things. So let me be a little bit specific. Um, the, the greatest contributor to a child's frustration uh, is by not having them obey their parents. You understand? If you want to contribute to their wrath, to their frustration, don't make them obey. Okay. Um, don't make them fulfill their responsibilities. Uh, don't let them be inconvenienced. Uh, don't let them be. Uh, uh, don't, don't let them miss out on activities. We think that those are the things that provoke children to wrath. It's not, okay? They need to be uh, excluded. They need to be overlooked from time to time. They need to be forbidden to have and do certain things. They need to have things taken away from them. Uh, they're just parts of reality. And if you're going to prepare your kids for reality, they have to be exposed. They have to be exposed. And God has always used that uh, to build character in his people make wholesome people for his glory. The child that is not made to obey uh, really is the child that's undesirable, uh, unbearable. Uh, the Proverbs say that uh, that child is the child that brings shame to its mother, brings shame to its mother. And this is the child that will struggle uh, with authority 
and ultimately obeying God. If you don't want your children to obey the Lord, don't make them obey you. But by making them obey you, you're teaching them to obey the Lord, teaching them to obey and respect authority. Uh, the child that is not made to fulfill his responsibilities grows up lazy, and he will always be an inconvenience to others. He'll be burdened to society, to family, to community, everything. The child that is never inconvenienced is the child that becomes a complainer and a whiner. How many guys like complaining and whining? I hate it. I hate it. I hate it when I do it. But yeah. A child that is never made to miss out on activities or privileges is the child that will grow up, grow up feeling sorry for themselves. They'll always sulk. They'll always pout because life was supposed to be about them. A child that never gets things taken away will think that they have a right to everything. And uh, we call that entitlement. And how's that going for us as a society? It's not good. Yeah. These are the children that will turn on you. They'll be ungrateful. They'll be unthankful. And they'll be absolutely unbearable. Unbearable. Okay. Those are the children that have been sheltered from reality. And therefore, they go unprepared for it. Uh, these are the children whose character has been neglected. Um, everything has been a disservice to them. Children should be, should be made to obey their parents. And they should be made to obey the first time when they're told to do something. Uh, frustration comes when securing a child's obedience is inconsistent with inconsistent discipline. Children that are made to obey the first time and consistently, it just becomes a part of life for them. Okay? If they know that uh, first-time obedience is required and it's followed through with training and discipline, they'll just learn to do that. Every child. Okay. Children should be made to do their chores. That's appropriate for their ability, of course. Exasperation comes when they're expected to perform above their ability. That's when children get frustrated and angry. Children should be exposed to what inconveniences them. That prepares them for reality. If they are never inconvenienced, they'll explode the day that they finally are. And they will be. Just be complaining and be rage. Children should be exposed to certain levels of inequity, inequality, and injustices simply because life is not fair. It's going to happen to them. Okay? It's going to happen to them. If they don't get to experience reality, it will be the end of the world. If they get excluded or overlooked for an activity, they won't just be disappointed. They'll be embittered and they'll be angry, unforgiving. And hateful. Okay, that's just the facts. If you look at uh, a quick survey of the Bible, uh, what is it that you see in most godly people in the scriptures? They suffered, they were neglected, they lacked, they were inconvenienced, they were mistreated. Now, obviously, this doesn't mean that we should mistreat our children, right? It means that we should let them experience the difficulties and the heartaches of life with the appropriate level of control. Yeah. But often, what the world thinks is bad for our children is good for them. And quite often, what the world thinks is good for our children is bad. Uh, you know, the Bible clearly teaches that, that young people should learn to respect authority. They should obey authority. You've watched the news lately. Yeah, it's coming out in our culture. And it's, it's even being justified. The Bible teaches sexual purity. That's becoming repulsive in our culture. Okay. I, I believe that there would be no loss to our parenting if we completely ignored the values of our culture and just did it as a whim. I think we could do better than our culture. Okay. But we have the scriptures... They're filled with God's direction, his wisdom for raising kids. Do not provoke them to wrath. This is followed by, a po by positive instruction. And this will be where our, our, uh, our time together tonight will be um, filled with. He says, bring them up. Bring them up, which means to raise them to maturity. Raise them to maturity. 
So first things first, the goal of parenting is to raise uh, children to godly maturity or to godly adulthood, okay? And this includes a number of things biblically. Let me give you uh, what I believe is, the, I think, the simplest outline uh, as far as the, the goals that we should have as parents. Um, we should raise our children up to love and glorify God, to be robust, responsible, honest workers, to be godly spouses, and to be godly parents. That is everywhere in the scriptures, but it's primarily uh, in the beginning, and that's where we're, we're headed. So parenting is not damage control. It's purposeful, and it's intentional. It has a goal in mind. Uh, our goal is not to keep them cute for as long as possible. That's, that's detrimental. It hinders their growth toward godly adulthood. It's, it's the worst kind of babysitting. Uh, biblical parenting has a goal, uh, which, as, as we've already talked about, it's not the goal of our culture. It's, it's not the goal of our peers. It, it's not our preference, okay? Uh, and it's not even our parents. Uh, the life of our child belongs to God. And the direction that we point them in is up to God. So how we bring them up to maturity must be determined by the scriptures where we find God's purpose for man and God's method to fulfill his will. So let's talk about purpose. Uh, and this is going to bring us to Genesis. Okay. Now, I have learned um, over the last, I don't know, probably 10 or 12 years to check all of my theology with Genesis chapter 1 through 3. And I, check, I now check all of my theology with Genesis 1 through 3. And the reason is, is that, that when God created everything, uh, he created it with his original intent in mind. It was his ideal. Okay? It was a sinless world. Okay? Uh, at the end of all of it, he looked at it and he said, it's exactly the way I want it. Okay? Sin was introduced, but sin is not sovereign enough to change God's ideal. Okay? It messes with the created order and his design, but it did not change his intent. It did not change his ideal for man. So, when it comes to my theology, I always check it with Genesis chapter 1 through 3. Okay. So that's where we're going to go. Um, purpose was assigned in the very beginning, uh, Genesis 1 through 2. Of course, Genesis 3 is where everything got uh, distorted with sin. And uh, so purpose, God's design, it's not something that he developed along the way. It's not something that he came, with, came up with later. It's something he had in mind before he, ever, before he created anything. So what he had perfectly in his mind was then manifested in creation. Okay? It was before creation. Now, anytime you have humanism involved, uh, sinful people, we would love to assign our own purpose for our existence, wouldn't we? Because then we get to be God. We get to set the compass. We get to set the direction. We get to do things our way. But we didn't contribute to our own existence, and so assigning our own purpose is really absurd. We can't alter the purpose for which we were created, okay? We can do different things differently than God desires, uh, but there's a term for that. It's called rebellion. It's called sin, okay? It's a distortion of what is perfect, okay? So we don't have the authority or ability to change our purpose and we don't have the moral right to do as we please. What is God's purpose for us? Which will naturally lead into uh, what God's purpose is in our parenting. Okay, ultimately, whatever God's purpose is for us is the same purpose for our children. Okay, it's exactly the same. <clears throat> so in Genesis 1 through 2, uh, God makes no bones about his desire for us. As we're created, it says, in his image... We're image bearers, to be workers, to be married, and to have children. Okay, we're image bearers. We're created to work. We're created to be married. We're created to have children. This is the facts of Scripture. Okay? The text goes like this. <clears throat> the sixth day, God has created the mammals, and then he moves on to us. It says, and God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, 
Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, see, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed. To you it shall be for food, and to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, and every, everything that creeps on the earth in which there is life. I have given every green herb for food. And it was so. Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Okay, now, as I go through the points that I gave you, um, there are some exceptions to the rule, some exceptions. So I want you to wait for the exception uh, just in case you get offended and want to flee the, the auditorium, okay? Wait for the exception. Um, all right. Image bearers. Because we are created as image bearers, it implies that God's desire for us is to be like him, okay, to represent him, uh, Genesis 1.26. And then when we examine all of the moral commandments throughout scripture, uh, for example, we discover that they're consistent with his moral character. Why would he do that? Why would he do that? You know, the Ten Commandments, according to Paul, are primarily, primarily meant to point out where we've strayed from the moral likeness of God. That's why he gave the Ten Commandments. And then the work of the Holy Spirit in sanctification is to make us more like God. That is to restore us okay, into the likeness of God, 2 Corinthians 3.18. So the, the purpose for the commandments being consistent with God's character is to lead us back into conformity to himself. It tells us where we're off, okay? And it tells us where we need to go. This whole thing about image, uh, the, 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 the divine image in us is interesting. In Matthew 22, when Jesus was challenged over the issue of paying taxes, you remember the story, he asked for a Roman coin to be given to him. I'm not gonna talk about taxes, okay? Just relax. And then he said, whose image is on the coin? And they said, Caesar's. And so Jesus said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. His image is on the coin, so make sure your taxes go to him. But then Jesus said, and give to God what is God's. Now, he's implying something very clear in the text. Okay? Is that all men are created in the image of God, and so their life belongs to him. It should be lived for him. And according to his will, we bear the image of God, just as that coin bore the image of Caesar. The coin belongs to Caesar. We belong to God, okay? And we should be given to him, given to him. So in our parenting, as we bring our children up, our greatest goal is for our children to love and to glorify God by obeying his word. There's no other way to be consistent with the image of God in us. There's no other way, okay? And I think all of that is, of course, summed up by the words of Jesus, you know, to love your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Pretty simple stuff. Yeah. Next thing, now, when I talk about dominion or the dominion mandate, I do not mean dominion theology. Uh, some of you don't know what that is. If you do know what that is, it's not what I mean. I don't believe in kingdom now theology uh, or theonomy or any of those sorts of things. Uh, I think those theologies are abhorrent, to say the least, and I think they're unchristian, and I don't think anybody that professes Christ should go near them. There's my, my take on that. The dominion mandate is in the text. I just don't believe it means what uh, dominion theologians believe it does. Um, 
But being created in the image of God was for the purpose of having dominion, which works itself out in managing what we're responsible for, uh, that is namely the earth and everything in it. Now, of course, an individual can only manage what he can manage. One man cannot manage everything in the world. And when we look at the text of Genesis, uh, man can mean Adam himself or mankind in general. And so the dominion mandate is not to Adam specifically, but it's to his progeny. It's as the earth is filled with mankind. Okay. We're called to be stewards of whatever God gives us. In Genesis chapter 2, Adam, uh, after he was formed, he was placed in the garden with the responsibility to tend it and to manage all life within it. He was given work. He was given responsibility and stewardship. Uh, now, I'm not, this isn't the Green New Deal, okay? This is biblical stewardship of the world that we live in. So God created man to be a worker as he himself is a worker, okay? In a Sabbath dispute uh, with the Pharisees, Jesus said, my father has been working until now, and I have been working, okay? The only thing that God rested from or stopped doing was he stopped creating material things, but he never stopped working, okay? He never stopped sustaining what he created. He never stopped ruling over his creation. He never stopped working in the hearts of men, and he never stopped orchestrating world history to his intended end. He never stopped doing that. What he rested from was creating material things. That's it, okay? God is the ultimate worker, and man, in his likeness, was created to be a hard worker who is responsible and honest, okay? So hard work, accompanied by honesty and integrity, is commended in the scriptures, simply because it reflects the character of God. It reflects his character. And, his, and in it is his original intent for us. Laziness is everywhere condemned in the scriptures because it's so different than God. It's contrary to his nature. In fact, laziness is worthy of discipline, whether it's natural consequences, societal consequences, and in the church, it is always worthy of discipline. Okay, Paul talks about it in Thessalonians. So as we raise our children to maturity, it requires that we raise them to be hard workers who practice honesty and integrity. It must. This can only be done by giving them responsibility and making sure that they follow through. That's it. Okay? And when they fail to follow through, as they will, we just continue to train and discipline until they become responsible. When they succeed, we reward them, and then we reward them with more responsibility. Amen? Isn't that what Jesus said? If you're faithful with a few things, what will I do? I'll let you take your ease. No, he says, I'll, I'll give you more stuff to be in charge of, okay? You know, by this whole process of godly parenting, uh, we won't need to babysit our kids when they move out, if they move out these days, okay? We won't have to feel bad for their spouse. I've talked to a lot of parents that feel bad for their child-in-law because their child is so lazy or such a slob. They're not a good roommate. Yeah. And we won't feel the need to apologize to their employer. How many of you, when you send your kids to work for someone else, you... You want to be proud of their work. You want to hear that they did a good job and that they were a benefit and a blessing to the people that they work for, whether they're getting paid for it or not. They have to be trained to, to work. By their work, they'll bring honor to the Lord. They'll provide for themselves and their families. They'll be able to contribute to the, the work of the Lord, missions and ministry, and they'll be a blessing to their community. Now, I have to mention this. Work is not a product of the fall. I've heard that. Work, work is in the world because of sin. No, you're getting your chronology out of order in the scriptures. Work came first, and then sin, okay? Sin came in Genesis 3. Work came in Genesis 2. 
That's just the order of things. Okay? Now, the utter enjoyment of work was diminished by sin, but work was not the product of it. Okay? We were created in the image of God to be a worker. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I love watching my kids work. Not, not like Rusty Brower says. He says, I'm not afraid uh, of work. I can watch you work all day, except everybody watches him work. I love watching my kids work because I know that it pleases God. It does. It's a blessing to them. It's a blessing to the family. And it will prove to be a blessing to their family. It's good. Yeah, you know, as soon as our kids uh, could carry plates and and silverware, uh, we'd have them set the table and put the dishes away. Now, if you've noticed, when children can identify a plate and carry it, they're about this big. So how do they get up into the cabinet to get the plates? Well, we stopped putting our plates up there because I didn't want to set the table. No, that's not why. I wanted to train them. So the lower cabinets were filled with our plates, bowls, cups, everything necessary to set the table. And so our, our, our little ones, they became responsible very early on to set our table and to clear it. Now, clearing it is different because the sink I couldn't lower. We just had to be careful. But as soon as they were able to do a task, we put them in charge of that task. It became theirs. Okay? And Isaac, to this day, he loves washing dishes. <laughs> Isaac washes all of our dishes, by the way. And um, I'm so proud of him because he'll tackle it at night. He'll get up early to get it done if he didn't get it done that night. And I don't have to say anything usually. Okay? If he's distracted, I'll say, hey, don't forget the dishes. And he goes, oh, yeah. And he'll, he'll go, he's like, dishes are the worst thing in the world. But not like a... He doesn't whine, he doesn't whatever, he just does the dishes. And then the kids, they have to dry dishes, put them away, and once in a while it turns into a boxing match, and we have to go in there and referee and, and clean up the mess and stuff. But it's, we throw them together in work to make them learn how to work together, okay? But we give them stuff to do. We make them in charge of work, and um, yeah, I love watching the kids work. For the most part, we just oversee chores. There's certain chores that I don't really want them doing yet. Um, I like my eggs a certain way, and so they don't usually make the eggs for breakfast. But I'm teaching them, teaching them. Anyway, anything extra the kids do with me, and they probably think I'm a slave driver, but the more they work, you know what they, you know what they don't know? They don't know they're working beautiful. The more they work, the more they don't know they're working. It's just a part of life. Work is just work. It's just something we do. And it's great. You know? um, when uh, our kids were able to walk without holding our hands, we kicked them out of the grocery cart. And the grocery cart was for babies and groceries. And we made them walk. And there were some growing pains there. They would fuss and complain. And, you know, I mean, the things, how creative they are when they're little. Oh, my legs hurt. And oh, it's like, you're like two. <laughs> what are you saying to me? But then before long, it's just the way life is. And uh, when we would go hiking, I made my kids walk until, I mean, their legs were about to buckle. Okay? And now I can hardly keep up with my kids on the trail. A week and a half ago, we went up to the high country. We did about seven miles, uh, close to 5,000 feet, and uh, it was steep climbing. And they just played and explored. And Asher, my six-year-old, he was the only one, and they were carrying backpacks, he was the only one that didn't fall asleep on the way home. He didn't fall asleep. In fact, Isaac was talking in his sleep, but I won't talk about that. So yeah, making them work. They'll bellyache after a while. They just understand it's the way that it goes. So, yeah, whining is just growing pains. Stick to your guns. Be consistent. And eventually, they'll just work. Yeah, work them until they stop complaining. That's what I say. Right, Shandy? Yeah. 
Train your kids to be hard workers, to be honest, to have integrity. As we continue in Genesis 1 and 2, we discover that God created man to be in relationship. Now, I would say that more and more, I don't have much time, do I? Let's go on a little bit here. I would say that in our culture, this one is becoming uh, probably the most controversial, maybe the last two. The idea of being married as one of the prescriptions of God and having children. It's becoming less popular in our culture, and, and I, I know that people don't like it, uh, but that's, that's too bad. Uh, they can take it up with the Lord. I'm just going to go with the scriptures. Um, I think that part of this is, it's kind of interesting to do an overview of the days of creation um, to help understand a little bit of this and, and some of the theology that comes out in it. Now, as I said before, I, there's exceptions. Please wait for them because I still want to be friends with you at the end of the day. All right. So the majority of Genesis 2 uh, Genesis 1 is a, is a quick overview of, of all the days of creation, right? It's fast. It's chuk, chuk, chuk. This is what God did. It was done fast. Uh, but the majority of Genesis 2 focuses on the sixth day. Okay? It narrows things down, and it, it concentrates on more of the details that happened that day, the day that God created Adam and Eve, which is the pinnacle of his creation, that which was created in his image. Okay? But Adam, as we know from the narrative, Adam was formed first, placed in the garden, given dominion, and put to work all by himself. And that's a problem. That's a problem, okay? At the end of every day of creation, day one through five, God looked at everything he had made, and he said, it's good. It's good. I do good work, okay? But sometime during the sixth day, that is before Eve was formed, God said, it is not good. It's not good that man should be alone. I'll make him a helper comparable to him, Genesis 2.18. So according to God, being alone is not good. It's not good. Not because of some arbitrary perspective. Understand that. It's not arbitrary. God, in his perfect perspective, in his judgment, he said, that is not what I intended. lacking something. It's lacking something significant about the image of God, which is relationship. That's the problem with it. God, as a trinity, is in relationship. He's a plurality of persons who are in perfect unity. So when God made mankind, the text says he made them in his image. Genesis 1.27 says that he created them, male and female. But when they are apart, alone, the text says that it wasn't good. You see, all people individually are created in the moral image of God, which implies a number of things and qualities. But it remains that when they are apart, separate from one another, we lack something in regard to the relational image of God that can only be fulfilled in marriage. Only. Okay? There's something... Some part of God's image, it can only be realized in marriage. It was only after Adam and Eve were united as one flesh did God approve of the sixth day. Okay? That's the only then. But God didn't say that the sixth day was just good. What does he say? It's very good. The pinnacle of my creation that is fashioned in my image, when it all comes together the way that I intended that's when it's very good, okay? That's my masterpiece. So back to parenting. If God's purpose for us is to be married, then what should we be preparing our children for? Marriage. Yeah, that should be an intentional part of our parenting. You know, boys, our little boys, shouldn't be in training to be good video game players. They should be being trained to be godly husbands, being instructed on how to use the authority that God has granted to them to be good providers, protectors, and those who cherish their wives. That's what that is. Girls, our little girls should be brought up to be godly wives, being instructed 
on how to apply their created dignity as their husband's helper and companion, respecting his authority. You know, I do a lot of premarital and marital counseling. I do a ton of it. And it usually takes about 15 minutes with a couple to know where they've strayed from Genesis. Ephesians chapter 5, 2 Peter 3. It's our lack of conformity to what God has designed for us. Yeah. You know, I think a number of Christian marriages are a mess in part because they were not being prepared for marriage as young people. Yeah. You know, it's just like kids that don't respect authority. It's likely that it wasn't taught and properly enforced in the home. It's like kids that don't work hard. It's likely that it wasn't taught and enforced properly in the home. It's just like, you name it. You name it. Why would marriage be any different? If God created us to be married, we ought to be raising our young people for marriage. But what about those who are celibate or never got married? Doesn't seem fair to them. Okay. Well, it's not an issue of fairness. It's just the reality of a sin-cursed world. That's the reality. Okay. We live in a mess. Sin has damaged God's ideal for man, and so there are exceptions to the rule. But I have to say, celibacy is an extreme exception. Extreme. Okay. Uh, not only is it for a select few, it's for almost no one who is a Christian. Um, you know, the monastic movement, and when I say monastic, I mean the monks specifically, but then the same theology is transferred over to priests. It, it began very early in church history, okay? But it wasn't something that, was, that came out of the scriptures themselves. The scriptures, of course, were used to justify the practice, but um, isn't everything used to justify? Or aren't the scriptures used to justify everything? Everything, yeah. The context of 1 Corinthians 7 where uh, the, the celibate or the celibacy doctrine points uh, does not foster a theology of celibacy, only temporarily, okay? Uh, the interpretation of the text has to be controlled by Paul's phrase that says, the current distress. Because of the current distress, certain things are permissible, okay? Permissible. He's saying there were circumstances in your community at this time that justify a delay, a delay, okay? It's circumstantial justification to abstain temporarily from marriage, but he didn't provide a norm for God's people. So what we might say is Paul never taught religious celibacy or celibacy for religious reasons. Now, Jesus may have alluded to some form of it in Matthew 19, but it doesn't account for the Catholic doctrine of celibacy or for celibacy in general, okay? Um, I, I don't know if I should even go through it. Um, how many of you guys are familiar with the problems of celibacy in the Catholic Church? And, and, but what most people don't realize is that it's centuries and centuries old, okay? Centuries. Uh, nuns being raped. Okay, children molested, nuns being impregnated, and the historical facts are uh, nuns of babies were killed to protect the reputation of the church. Priests have been protected. Okay, when you look at all of the, the sins that come out of celibacy, you know what it proves? It proves that God intended for people to be married. Okay, Paul calls... Uh, the forbidding people to marry a doctrine of demons. And people say, well, the, the, but religious celibacy doesn't forbid marriage. No, people are religiously shamed to stay in celibacy. So yeah, it, it still is forbidden culturally. It's a doctrine of demons. Why would Paul call it a doctrine of demons? Because God's ideal for man is to be married, and I know someone that would like man to not be married. His enemy. Okay, God's ideal is for marriage. Okay, now I think there are other reasons why people should not get married. Um, I'm not sure that now is the platform for that. 
But we're in the context of parenting, okay? And you don't know if God has called your child to celibacy, amen? So what should you do? You should prepare your children for marriage by the instruction of God's word, by your example, and everything else. You should be showing them what it is to be heirs together of the grace of life, as 2 Peter 3, 8 says, or 3, 3 verse 7. Okay? They should witness that. They should see that. And so they should desire it themselves, not just because it's in obedience to God, because it's pleasant, it's beautiful. Okay. All right, I have to stop there. Uh, we'll get to having kids uh, another night. I've already gone about five minutes past. If you have questions, I'll be here after service to talk to you, and uh, I can give you all of my other exceptions. How's that? Okay. All right, go ahead and stand up, and we'll pray. All right, well, Father, thank you for your word. And Lord, as I've already stated, I, I check all of my theology. I run it back through what your ideal was in Genesis 1 and 2. And Lord, nothing can possibly be as good as your ideal for humanity. Sin has distorted some things. It's, it's made your ideal a great challenge. But it has not changed your mind about your purpose for man, your ideal for man. And as we look through your word, Lord, it's always pointing us back to your ideal. And Lord, only by your grace, only by your spirit dwelling in us, can we make life look anything remotely similar to that. But Lord, I would pray for all of us that we would humble ourselves and submit our opinions to you, our perspective, our, our cultural outlook, and just yield to what your scriptures say, believing, Lord, that you love us with an everlasting love and that your, your wisdom is unending. It's perfect. Lord, help us to yield to that and then by your grace to strive for what your word says. And so, Lord, I just thank you and I pray that in our parenting, as we strive for that, Lord, that we would look to you, we would humble ourselves, Lord, and we would cry out for grace. And Lord, I know that, I know that every parent desires that their kids would be better than them, that they would be better lovers of God and servants of the King. And uh, so just help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.